Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Welcome back, folks, to another intense episode of Conspiracy yeah. Normal with your host, Adam Sane, and your co-host, yours truly, Luke Reed. Well, what's up, Luke? Uh, Been a little bit. Yeah, it has. I don't, I don't know how to do this podcast stuff anymore. <laughs> I've lost it. Well, I think, you know, I think it's uh, come back to you. Uh, anyway... Really great show last time. We had Tex Allen on talking about Burning Man. Mm-hmm. You know, from what you remember, you got anything that you particularly liked about that show? I, I like it. Got emotional, man. Yeah, it did get emotional. And and he uh, he made me really want to go. Like I I totally want to go now. I don't care how much it costs. You know, it just sounds part of the playa. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like an experience is worth it. You know, no, it may be worth four hundred dollars a ticket. Yeah, by the time we'll, by the time we knew one of us get to go, it probably be like up to like six hundred, seven hundred dollars. But uh, anyway, to, today we're just doing like a brief short intro here. Um, today we have uh, coming on with us here in just a few minutes is uh, Chris White is returning to the show, and uh, Chris came on uh, actually about a year ago, a little over a year ago in November last year, and he was talking about uh, Ancient Alien Debunked and. Uh, we, he's going to talk today about, uh, we're going to talk to him about Mystery Babylon and maybe a couple of other things. Um, 
Biblical prophecy is not something that I've gotten too much into on the show, even though that uh, I am um, into it somewhat. Uh, lately haven't been, but uh, this book uh, that he's written and some of his ideas have gotten me kind of re-interested in it, so I wanted to bring him on. And uh, plus, you know, uh, he was our like most downloaded podcast ever. Yeah. So we're going to have him back on. So our fans are stoked. That's right. Everybody, everybody will be stoked, man. Stoked. <laughs> but uh, without further ado, I think I'm just going to go ahead and we're just going to, you know, close out the intro and we'll bring him on. Word. All righty. We'll see you be back with uh, Chris White. All right, we're back on Conspiracy Normal. As you know, this is Adam <laughs> and Luke. And on the line, we have a very special guest, uh, Mr. Chris White, who... Uh, now uh, lives out in the boonies. Used to live here in Nashville, where we are, but uh, he's out there uh, in his in his log cabin and with his dog, surviving, hunting yep. for his own food. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we've got him on the line. We're going to talk about uh, an interesting subject. Uh, Chris has been making kind of some waves recently in the uh, prophetic, uh, biblical prophetic com- community uh, with his new book, uh, Mystery Babylon. And uh, and there was also a video series, I believe, and a podcast that uh, you did like a couple of years ago on this. I'm correct, Chris? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had Chris on like uh, last year, as I mentioned in the intro, talking about ancient uh, aliens debunked, and that was our most downloaded show, as I said before. And uh, the second most downloaded was Doc Marquis. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so you got some competition there, Chris. Yeah, well, I, th- I tell you, the ancient aliens thing, I mean, that that's just got a lot of uh, interest behind it, so yeah. so I, I think that that's really more what it's about than anything else. I've heard other people say similar things about the ancient aliens views, and I think it's just, there's just a lot of interest in it out there. It's all you, Chris. It's all you. <laughs> <laughs> you, are the, you are the guru of us all. Uh, right, right. But let's get started. I want to get started talking about Mystery Babylon. Uh, you know, we don't go into a lot of biblical prophecy in this show. So, for our listeners that don't know anything about biblical prophecy, uh, and I don't know, Luke, you don't know much about. Well, some I know stuff. what biblical means, and I know what prophecy. Yeah, means. okay, there you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> for people that don't know a lot about biblical prophecy, about the Book of Revelation. Uh, what is that concept of Mystery Babylon? What is that about? Well, um, Mystery Babylon is a, a title that we have given the entity in Revelation 17 and 18. And it's a really intriguing passage. It, it's, it's essentially saying that uh, John is seeing a vision, first of all, of a woman who is sitting on a seven-headed, ten-horned beast... And that beast is on the water, and an angel comes along and tells him, Hey, I want to tell you what you just saw. And the angel gives a description, or rather an interpretation of this sort of allegorical thing that he sees. The angel interprets it in a rather uh, literal kind of way. He says it's a sea. He says it's a city that will reign over the kings of the earth. He says that the seven heads are uh, seven kings. He says that, uh, you know, he goes on to give a lot of different information. 
uh, about this specific information. He says that uh, you know merchants will bring certain items to it, and he spends you know quite a lot of time describing what items those are. Um, he says that it will ultimately. What what's interesting about what what the angel says about John's vision is he says the woman that's riding this beast, she. Well, actually, she's sitting on the beast as sort of in a victorious kind of way. She's got she's dressed a certain way. Uh, she's she's living in, in kind of luxury. She says of the beast, you know, basically that she has found a husband. She is no. She's extremely happy about this uh, this uh, arrangement. However, at the end, now keep in mind the the angel says that that woman is a city and she's riding this seven-headed, ten-horned beast, which. Uh, which can go into detail later about what it says that is. The point is, is that later on, the the beast itself turns on the woman, so she is apparently bet on the wrong horse. It, it's a lot of really interesting details. In fact, I count o- over 90 uh, characteristics about this particular uh, situation in these two chapters. Now, the problem is, is that over the uh, over the course of the years. Uh, there have been a number of interpretations about this that have really been widely divergent, uh, much more so than anything else uh, quite like this. I mean, for the most part, uh, Christians see, you know, Revelation, some of the criticisms of the book of Revelation are that, oh, it's all, you know, allegorical, and it's all using these symbols. And that's true. The book of Revelation uses a, a good deal of things like that. But it also is a quite a literal book. It's it like, for example, in this situation, the angel is interpreting those symbols. It's not leaving it to our our imagination. Uh, and so, so much of the Book of Revelation like that, uh, though it uses these grand symbols, it also is very uh, uh, meticulous in how it uh, interprets those. So, so it, it's odd that these two chapters receive a huge variety of uh, uh, of interpretations. And I would su- submit. That the reason that there has been a number of interpretations on the, this, these two chapters is not because um, it's ambiguous in the text, but rather because um, the church throughout the, of its history has has always sort of had the uh, desire to put the end times in its current geopolitical context. So, and that's just it's human nature i mean you know and we're we're doing the same thing today well you know the end times are right now so let's look yeah. around and see what what this what this woman is in context and if you read back throughout the history of the church they've always done that with mystery babylon well we since we know that the end times are right now that means that this city must be blank and so there's been a number of those kind of things over the 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 uh the years what are some of those um well, first I wanted to ask, like, the context in the book of Revelation, where does it fall? Uh, is it right before the second coming of the millennial reign uh, that he that that he sees this kind of the chronology of Revelation? Is it right well, before that in the book? Well, actually, it's kind of at the, it, it's right at the very end. Um, he okay. gets into the, this idea of, of mystery Babylon as he begins to discuss the the final what's what are known as the bowls. These are exceedingly di- uh, disastrous things that happen, and they probably happen uh, at the very end of this whole thing. In fact, I would say that within a three day period, things like in everything in the sea dies, and all the green grass is destroyed. These kinds of things that are entirely uh, just massively cataclysmic. Um, but one of the last bowls is the destruction of this city. That prompts um, this this vision to essentially describe what it is that's being destroyed at that very end part. So the, 
the, the two chapters of Revelation 17 and 18 are, if you will, a biography of what uh, in the chronology is just being destroyed at the very end of, uh, of this whole scenario. Okay. Well, I want to talk about, too, like the traditional ideas and some of the places that Mystery Babylon is thought to have been over time. Uh, what are some of those places that people have, that scholars, uh, religious people have, have looked at as being Mystery Babylon before? Sure. Well, the the primary one has always been Rome, in, in different contexts in Rome. Right. And you have to keep in mind that when this was early writings of, of the Church Fathers, they, they of course, saw, um, even though it's interesting, I've been reading a lot of the Church Fathers, and almost unanim- unanimously, in, in fact, I could almost say a uh, unanimous uh, uh, view of the Church Fathers was that the Antichrist would be uh, Jewish, that he would come from... You know, the tribe of Dan, they believed, and a lot of different things. But they believed that there was sort of a false sort of system that was Roman. Anyway, don't want to get the minutia there. I just simply want to say that Rome, both in its imperial context, keeping in mind that uh, the first writings that we have are when Rome, both the Western and Eastern empires, were uh, still operative. Then, of course, after Rome fell around the 400s, of course, the Eastern Empire continued for another seven, six or 700 years but then the church, even after the fall of Rome altogether, uh, still believed that it was uh, it was going to be Rome because there wasn't any you know after Rome fell there wasn't any anything that ruled over anything so they just had to kind of believe that well okay Rome's dead but maybe it'll still be Rome kind of thing it was very easy and, and you'll see the same thing with as I go through some of these other uh, things that people believe. But basically, the, the main thing people are, are, are looking for is this idea of persecution of Christians. Since Mystery Babylon uh, uh, is believed to, to persecute uh, Christians, as well as it says prophets, which is an interesting thing in itself, but uh, it, it says it persecutes the saints. And, and, and so they simply were living in a time where, in the early imperial time, Christians were being killed left and right, first by Nero, and then later by subsequent persons. So it was very easy to believe. Well, hey, look, we're dealing with it right now. This is it. Hey, you know, let's yeah. let's get ready because here we're getting persecuted. The, this is a, a city that has a lot of power. Case closed. And all the other eighty-nine characteristics that I believe don't fit with it, they were willing to sort of, you know, sweep under rug because hey, we got the two main ones, right? They're killing people and they're a big, powerful city. Um, and so that that kind of idea was carried over into now, uh, you know, papal Rome and the absence of any kind of Rome now it's just Pope is is that same thing and you know they had some some something to work with there because the, of course the the persecutions of the Inquisition and so on by the time that was all over though uh, it started to, you know in the in the more modern times we have gone a lot of different directions with it uh, uh, currently right now the big one is Islam which of course is the same kind of idea hey they're killing people you know they're big bad you know uh, uh, sort of so that's the city, and so that's the prevailing, probably, view these days. Um, though there's also been a, a push for that it's America. This is also the same kind of idea. People are simply looking for the biggest, baddest place in the world, and whatever that, that is in their sort of worldview is what they'll call it. But what I'm trying to say, and the reason a different kind of uh, book, is that I'm simply going verse by verse through these chapters and saying, look, there are 90 characteristics about this thing that all have to fit, you know, if we're going to if we're going to be serious about this. And I would submit that all 90 of those characteristics can be found in other places in the Bible. And it's a, it's a description of when Jerusalem embraces 
the Antichrist in the end time. It's it's it, in that time, uh, Jerusalem will be, if you will, the capital city of the world. Um, that sounds so preposterous in one sense from our geopolitical sensibilities, but you have to consider if there is ever going to be a person that claims to be the Messiah, if he's going to try to to actually make that claim, he has to fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah about making Jerusalem the capital city of the world. There is no potential candidate for Messiah in the, in the eyes of the Jews unless Jerusalem is the capital world empire. And we all know basically from the other places in Scripture that this is basically, we see things like the Antichrist, you know, his prophesied in Second Thessalonians 2 and other places to, to be in Jerusalem, to sit in the temple, to, to declare himself to be God. All, all this very Jerusalem-specific stuff yeah, we have this amazing disconnect to say, oh, no, 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 it's not going to be anything about Jerusalem. Even though we all can simply, just from our you know, day, you know, Bible reading, that, hey, yeah, this is going to be a very Jerusalem thing. Take the two witnesses, for example, uh, are prophesying for three and a half years in the streets of Jerusalem. They're killed in Jerusalem, the Antichrist. You know, this is, we could go on and on about the Jerusalem-specific nature of the end times. But it, it all fits like a glove, not just in this chapter, but in all the prophetic passages. And I think that the reason that it is not often uh, uh, said, because it has this connotation of being negative towards, uh, or anti-Semitic or, or something like that, when in no way am I anti-Semitic or anything else, or even close to it. I simply, and I think that the history uh, have, you know, of course, uh, been waiting for the Messiah. They rejected Jesus as Messiah for precisely the reasons that they will accept the Antichrist. That is, they, that Jesus didn't do the things that the Messiah was supposed to do. He, he didn't, uh, you know, he, he certainly will do that point uh, in, in the, what we call the second advent. But the point is, is that because he didn't make Jerusalem the capital city and deliver Jerusalem from his enemies, that is the, the main argument of any Jew that, no, Jesus can't be the Messiah. We're still waiting for one that does this sure. stuff. So that's, that's essentially the context of how this will ultimately play out. So you believe that, uh, you, from, your, from your research, that... Mystery Babylon is Jerusalem, and you make a pretty strong case for it. So, right. what are the some of the attributes that lends that idea that Mystery Babylon is a future Jerusalem? Well, number, um, I would say that first of all, we, we have this this woman that is sitting on this beast. Uh, she's called a harlot. The great harlot is her name. It's written on her forehead. Um, that idea alone is a very, very Jerusalem-specific term. Uh, the word harlot, calling the city of Jerusalem a harlot, is probably done a hundred or more times in Scripture. I don't have the exact number, but it's, it's quite a lot. Um, and it, it's, it's a very specific kind of harlotry that they are uh, doing when the Bible calls them that. It's, a, it's two things. It is a, the worshipping of false gods, uh, the, the idea there in Ezekiel 16 is, is that God has, has dressed up this, this city and adorned it with all these jewels, but she, you know, and, you know, symbolic kind of, of you know, made it prosperous. But, but what she did was use this beauty to go uh, commit fornication, commit uh, a, a, a harlotry, as the Bible says, um, by worshiping other gods. And the the picture there is what is also being referred to in if you will spiritual adultery but but that's just a, a sort of basic idea let me get into some of the specifics we do know that that Mishmalon so called kills the prophets revelation 1824 
uh, says that explicitly. Now, this is difficult because there isn't any other city that has ever been known to kill the prophets. Um, and we are told specifically by Jesus himself that it is impossible for any prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. I thought this was an interesting quote when I saw it. Luke 13, 31 through 34. Um, he said, let me just read it in context. He says, the same day there were certain Pharisees saying to him, get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said to them, go ye and tell that fox, behold, I cast out devils and do cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I shall expect it. Nevertheless, must I walk today and tomorrow and the day following. Here it is. For it cannot be that a prophet perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killeth the prophets, and stonest them that are sent to how often would I have gathered thy children together, as hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and you would not. So, he, Jesus says, look, I can't leave the city, I have to be killed in Jerusalem, because it can't be that a prophet perish outside of Jerusalem. Okay, so that's a pretty interesting thing. Uh, but it goes on, uh, in Luke, it says that the, that the blood of, well, he starts off by saying, woe to you, uh, for you build the tombs of the prophets, yet your fathers killed them. And then skip down to verse uh, 50 of, of chapter 11. He says, The blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. He's talking to the people there in Jerusalem who just said, You guys are the ones that killed the prophets. And he then says that the blood of all these prophets is going to be put on you. The exact phrase uh, used there, uh, the idea of the blood of the prophets um, being on Mystery Babylon. There, there is uh, certainly no uh, shortage of proof texts that we could, even in that one that we had just mentioned, the idea that uh, Jerusalem has children. You know, I want to gather your children together. The idea of, of Jerusalem's children is is, her, is uh, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. What, what, what uh, it says in Mystery Babylon is that, that Jerusalem is the mother of harlots. And that's essentially the idea there, is that, that they will embrace the Antichrist as if he was uh, their true Messiah, as if they were uh, as if he was God. Um, there are a number of things, let's see, we could go into the idea that it's called the great city in Revelation 11.8. Uh, uh, so this is the same author in the same book, that is John, saying that the so-called great city is, is, is Jerusalem. He says, And their dead bodies, speaking of the two witnesses, will lie in the street of the, quote, great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. There are a lot of interesting things in this verse. Uh, first of all, he's he's clearly talking about Jerusalem, where our Lord was crucified. But he calls it. It's a, he says he has a spiritual name. That's an interesting idea. That Jerusalem has a spiritual name, and its name is Sodom and Egypt. Now, clearly, those are not good uh, cities in terms of biblical context. He's Let me calling ask a question it. Real quick, Chris. Something sure. Yeah. I, re- I read this and saw this in your video. Why is Egypt referred to as a city? Because isn't that a, a nation? Well, certainly, he's saying here the the which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Indeed, uh, that is a, a city. I'm not sure why uh, it called it a city there. Uh, I don't think that the the point of this verse is to say these are cities. Uh, so, for example, he's saying that this great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, if you will, is not necessary in this context for everything that this city is called to also be a city. That is, we can call, um, you know, your, your spiritual name is blank, and it's not sort of required okay. to also be a city. So but, it's kind um, of figurative language in a way. Right. And the point I would make about this is twofold. Number one is that here in Babylon, the idea is that the reason it's not Babylon, the city of Babylon, 
it is the the idea of mystery, mystery is a Greek term, mysterion, uh, in something uh, that can be revealed, if you will. Uh, that that the name of Babylon, it's calling this 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 harlot city who is riding this 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 antichrist. Uh, that that it's um, if you will, it has a spiritual. It's spiritually Babylon, which I think is interesting here. The second point that I would make here is that it calls it the great city, which is the same uh, phrase used in Revelation 16 to describe mystery Babylon. That's significant because it is the same author in the same uh, book calling it the same name, the great city, and, and also in that in chap in that chapter in ver- uh, chapter 16, what's interesting, it calls it it it, co- it separates the so-called great city, which is mystery Babylon with the cities of the nations, or the cities of the Gentiles, right there, the, the fact that it made that distinction between the great city and the, the Gentiles is also an argument in its favor. But I wouldn't push right. that point too strongly. Um, I, I think that there are you know, more interesting points uh, about it, but, but uh, I want to quickly say that the, the basic idea here of what she is doing by riding the beast and being so happy about it the the idea is that she is promoting the worship of this Messiah as if she has found her Messiah. The city of Jerusalem in the future, according to this view, will promote to the world, hey everybody, you know how we've been waiting for our Messiah for like, whatever, however long this has been? Sure. Well, we found him. And, and, and we're ex- exceedingly ecstatic about it. And he can do all this stuff, and he's doing all the stuff that the scripture said that he would do. He's, he's delivering us from our enemies. Of course, Israel is surrounded by enemies. And here this guy, we know from Daniel 11, the primary thing that the Antichrist does is he completely destroys the Muslim world, something that is completely contradictory to mon- modern prophecy, uh, who thinks that uh, Islam is the, is the, uh, yeah. is the Antichrist. It's a reverse of that, to be the Antichrist if they're gone, yeah. Right. So, anyway, that, that's that's what, what she's doing. She's promoting him as the Antichrist. It says, very, and a very interesting thing about her, it says that the world is made drunk by the fierceness of her fornication, or the, the intensity of her fornication. In other words, that she is promoting, so excited about, so enthralled with this Messiah character that she has found, uh, that she is writing, that the world is essentially made drunk by her fornication. Uh, it's made drunk by this, that her so focused on this guy, that the world is drawn into it. Now, of course, this is a very difficult thing for us to even fathom in terms of geopolitically. Most of the world uh, hates Israel uh, and, and certainly would not be willing to, 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 to worship a Messiah that they've found. And I think that while it, while it would be taken into account that it says that the world is going to be drawn into it or made drunk by it, especially because of all these things that he's going to be do- doing, it's going to look pretty good for those people that are on the fence one way or the other. But make no mistake about it, there's going to be a great number of non-Christians, atheists and other people who just simply aren't going to worship anybody, let alone this guy. And But the problem here is what we're told about the Antichrist is that he essentially doesn't really care. He's going to give everybody the same deal, which is, look, here's the deal. You get this, you know, you either worship me or, you know, take this marker you can't buy or sell, and if you don't take it, then we're going to have to kill you. He's going to have a really solid reason for doing that. And I think most people, whether, you know, that don't really care one way or the other, uh, you know, or just, they got a family to feed and whatever. Hey, look, we got to... Throw, just like in the Roman days, you got to throw a pinch of incense to this guy to, you know, not be killed. Whatever, here's your incense. Like, no, no sweat off my back. A lot of people are going to do it just to to live, but they might not 
you know, be into it, as it were. But that being said, the only people, just the same as in the Roman days, that wouldn't, that couldn't uh, throw a pinch of incense to Caesar and worship him as God, even though it seems so trivial, would be exposed. At. And that's essentially what we see also in the in the scriptures: is that this idea of, of of this worship is something that a true Christian simply cannot do. And it's because of that that they're ex- they're exposing. The Bible speaks of the time that 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 particular time of this persecution will be so interesting. It talks about whatever this doctrine is, the world is going to be so into it that, as as, as Jesus says, mothers are going to give up their children, brothers are going to turn in their brothers. Everybody is going to be against anybody doesn't do this. There's going to be either a great fear or a great zealousness about not going along with the program here. So it's sort of this rock and a hard place for uh, Christians, and that causes them to, to be on the run. The Antichrist figure, why do you think ultimately he chooses Jerusalem as the place to rule? What is the I think motivation that he, there? Well, I think that uh, the primary thing is that he needs to in order to be legitimate. The, the, the point is that he's trying to do here is trying to... It, it's kind of like any other cult or any other thing in the world that's that's that that has something going for it like you know anything the Jehovah's witnesses you know come to your door and they'll say hey didn't you know that christmas is actually based on saturnalia and then you say i didn't know that and they were like yeah it really is here you can go look it up and you look it up and you find out wow christmas is really based on saturnalia these jw's got it all figured out hey tell me more jw's let me join your kingdom hall they used a bit of truth in order to suck you into the JWs. And, and here is no different. Uh, his best shot is to use the absolute truth that those actual prophecies about a Messiah really returning and really actually doing all he's going to pretend to do, all that's is really going to happen. All that stuff is going to happen, but he's going to need to try to make it look like it happened before it happened in order to, if you will, circumvent... Uh, all, all that uh, you know. The, the goal, obviously, is 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 worship to receive worship, which is what uh, ultimately we're told that this is all about. Um, the point is, is that he has to. Uh, you can't be a messiah without uh, building a, a temple. You can't be a messiah without uh, doing all these things, making it seem like the millennium has begun. All the rest of it. So it's a very intricate theory. I, I've thought long and hard about the the kind of doctrine that he would be able to to use. He's go- I was just reading some of the church fathers that said uh, an interesting line. He says, uh, the Antichrist will prove from Scripture that he is the Christ. That's an interesting statement. The idea is that the Antichrist is going to be able to say, look, look at all these Scriptures. There's like, you know, 200 Scriptures that talk about what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to, he's going to deliver you from your enemies. He's going to make Jerusalem the capital. He's going to do all these things. There's going to be a pilgrimage system that's set up to Jerusalem. Let me ask you, did Jesus do any of that? He's going to say, do you remember Jesus doing any of that? I don't think so. Uh, but did, you, did I do that? Yes, I did. There you go. Case closed. Bible closed. Let's get on with it. So, so he, it's, it's part of his game plan. This leads me to an interesting question. I have thought about uh, the figure of the Antichrist and what he would mean. And I've actually thought about the fact that he would actually pose as the Jewish Messiah. But he would also pose as, say, like the Islamic Mahdi. I know the Baha'is have someone, someone in their faith that they see as coming in the future. Uh, that this 
figure the Antichrist would pose as like every religion's savior, basically. So, if he's posing as the Jewish Messiah, does that mean that Christians are going to worship him as well? Well, this... I would say that uh, I do think that that's the goal. The goal is to get Christians to apostatize, to leave Christianity in favor of this guy. Um, the that's a pretty we think that's a pretty hard thing to do. But I was just um, we were when we were having a, a, a dinner the other night. I was I just got done reading um, this book by Joe Richardson, where he essentially Joe Richardson believes that the Antichrist will be a, a Muslim, and to make a long story short, what he is essentially teaching is, in Muslim eschatology, there's a so-called Dajjal, this character that the Muslims be, believe will be the Antichrist. Well, the Muslims believe that the Antichrist will pretend to be the Jewish Messiah, and that will provoke them to go to war against him. And what's interesting about that is that Scripture says that, that the Muslim world will preemptively attack the Antichrist. Like, when the Antichrist goes to war, he's actually not going to make the first move. The first move is going to be the Arab world attacking him, which he then completely destroys. Okay? Now, so, so the Muslim eschatology, now this Joel Richardson certainly wouldn't say this, but, the Joel, but their eschatology is essentially um, provoking, doing, to do one thing, to provoke them to believe that the real Antichrist is the Antichrist so that they will attack him, which makes him destroy them and makes him look like the true messiah but then bill richardson says the thing that answers your question he says if you ever see anything like that happen if you ever see if you ever see a man you know the jews all of a sudden are you know have found their messiah he delivers them from their enemies you know all this stuff happens would we be willing to say yeah maybe we had our eschatology wrong a little bit he says you know of course we would he says basically he's saying if what I'm saying is true, then what Joel Richardson and what most people believe right now in the in the prophecy world is that, hey, if a guy ever does this, if he ever pretends to be the Jew, or not pretends, if he ever, there's ever a guy that claims to be the Jewish Messiah and he delivers Israel from its enemies, that's the guy. It doesn't really even matter if the Bible's not 100% uh, accurate. Or if it, the Bible 100%, that's the guy regardless. So that's an incredibly dangerous view to, to hold. And especially considering that, like, the, like as I said, the early church complete understood that the that the the antichrist would be an antichrist, an anti messiah. That's what the word Christ means. He he's not so, going to be. Yeah. He's going to pretend to be a messiah, not 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 a Islamic guy or or anything else. I, I would say, and I used to hold the view that, that he tried to be things to all people, but I don't think that that's what Scripture is saying. I don't think that there's any part of Scripture that, that seems to suggest that the Antichrist will attempt all things to all people. The one thing that we get that from is this idea that it says all people will worship him. And so we assume, well, if all people worship him, then he must appeal to everybody. But that's but it also explains that his program is what actually causes that worship. Well, two things. Number one, he seems to resurrect from the dead. That alone seems to, to make mo- more people actually genuinely worship him. Uh, but the second thing is this program that he has to sort of weed out any people on the fence. That is, uh, what what well what uh, Satan has always done throughout history. He has uh, given people an extreme incentive to apostatize. Hey, you want to stop all this torture? That's fine. Just deny that Christ is is who he is, and we'll we'll let you go on home. And that's been the case from you know Hitler, or you know, maybe not Hitler, but a lot of the certainly the Roman persecutions and the Catholic persecutions, and you know, a lot of the other the Russian persecutions, and whatnot. So. 
anyway, all that to say that I don't think it's necessary to, to be all things to all people. I think he just has to be one thing to one people, and the rest of them will come either come in or die, and that's their only choices. And I think this building up around us, this, this you know, with the technology and all the stuff, really is going to seal the deal on that. You know, if the, the beast can actually have some teeth in a world that's completely, you know, gridlocked or in the grid, if you will, um, it's going to be very hard to 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 be outside of the the system when all this is in place. I believe. Right. I wanted to ask you too uh, about the symbology. This is something that uh, I found interesting. Uh, you know, the beast with the seven heads. Uh, the seventh head is generally considered to be the coming Antichrist. Um, John's writing about 2,000 years ago. There were six right. heads that came before the seventh. So were those six before John was writing? Were there six guys that had come and gone that were basically Antichrist before them? Right. Uh, so what I would say that the, the seven-headed ten-horned beast is is basically Satan. Uh, he is the beast. Um, he, we, we know that the heads are individual men. It calls them kings. Um, in addition yeah. to that, uh, it, it it says that one of those kings, you know, it goes on to say, has the mortal wound, but did you know lived? And we see, of course, in Revelation thirteen, that is repeated several times to make us sure that it that the sim, sim, symbol there is that the heads are individual kings have lived on earth. Uh, so in your so you're right in saying that in this in this if to follow this to its logical conclusion, that five of whom it says there are also seven kings, uh, they are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, and the would other that not be yet the comes Roman up. emperor. Well, I the one that is, I would yeah. say that the one that is probably whether it's Roman Empire, R- Roman emperor, or somebody else at that time that this was written. Yes, that's that's okay. what I think that uh, hermeneutically would have to. Uh, agree with that. Then I would also say that there were five, uh, mani- if you will, manifestations of Satan in the form of a human king. Uh, five, that happened five five other times. In, in uh, I think that you can prove those other five cases from Scripture. I think that there is a, a way to do that to, to, to determine which five people those were. Now, a lot of people have their their lists. You know, people like uh, a Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar or Sennacherib, uh, the king of or, or different things like that in terms of actual physical kings that you can tell from Scripture were were something uh, quite a bit different than your average king. And I think that, that, that Scripture gives a certain uh, uh, path to figure out who those people are. If, but I don't ultimately think it's terribly important, but I think it's uh, it's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting um, to think, because when you, when, you, when you think about Antichrist, a lot of people go to something like uh, Hitler, for example. You know, and so he really wouldn't be on the list because the six guys that came before the seventh that is to come, I mean, they were a long time ago. So I think people kind right. of gravitate towards something like that, like the kind of the Nostradamus prophecy or whatever, which I'm sure is, you know, but, right. but you know, a lot of people say Napoleon is the first and then Hitler and then there's a third guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Right, and I would say that it's important to decide what criteria we're looking for because if it's just simply you know people that do a lot of damage or kill a lot of people, then we could make our list uh, you know or whatever. But I think the specific characteristics that it mu- characteristic must include is this consistent uh, blaspheming in terms of putting themselves higher than God or putting themselves in the place of God. It's a very interesting characteristic of Antichrist that I think that follows this thread to not only find the five, but also determine who the one is. And, of course, we have a lot of information about the seventh one, and that is clearly one of his primary characteristics. Right. I want to ask, too, about how the ideas, your ideas about Mr. Babylon being Jerusalem, how do they fit into the current, like, geopolitical situation? We kind of touched on that briefly. But, like, well, do you see a scenario well, playing out that, that allows this to happen? The scenario, I think, would go something like this. Um, first of all, there would be some sort of vacation. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know what would come first, the chicken or the egg. In, in uh, And again, I don't want to give too much weight to Islam uh, 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 eschatology, but th- they say that uh, the, the somebody would find the Ark of the Covenant. And I would whether they, they do or not, it would seem to be a necessary part of sacrifices starting again. I would submit that perhaps something like that, something like an archaeological discovery like the Ark of the Cup, uh, could put wheels in motion to, of course, make uh, make it very, uh, first of all, messianic expectation, super, super high, uh, because, of course, everything that Jews are waiting for is the rebuilding of the temple. Their entire religion is null and void unless that temple is up. So you better believe they want to, to do that. And if they're in the Ark then that's basically a sign from God, hey, it's time to build the temple. So they, they put things in motion, start doing things that they, you know, uh, probably causing a lot of trouble. The Muslim world would be uh, similarly stirred up by this uh, movement because their, uh, their false Islamic es- eschatology t- tells them that the Antichrist is going to pretend to be a Jewish uh, messiah. So, and they're told that whenever they see that, it doesn't matter if they have to cli- crawl across glass or ice or whatever it is, they have to go to the war against that guy. It's just a Muslim duty for everybody to go to war against that as soon as they see the Jews starting to do that. So the, the messianic expectations could then could be capitalized upon by the Antichrist, who does two things. Basically, he begins to himself in that in, in that scenario to the Jews, uh, which then causes the Muslims to to uh, attack, which then would fit like a glove with Daniel eleven. Uh, 40 through 45 in the wars of Antichrist where the Muslim world attacks him. He completely destroys them, thereby presenting himself and saying, look, I did it. That completely destroyed our enemies and subjugated them. Uh, And uh, this whole scenario could start something like that. Uh, The whole thing you can keep in mind is something that is just so geopolitically easy to do uh, from, you know, if we, you know, we talk about the New World Order and something like that. Pulling some of those strings at this point is a piece of cake. They already have the, the stuff in place that could cause the, the thing to happen, the civilization of Islam, the, the Islamic eschatology, and, and the Jewish es- eschatology. All they really need to do is produce something like, you know, the Ark of the Covenant or whatnot. Uh, and that would just basically be a powder keg that would happen on its own almost. Yeah, it would mean like the building of the third temple. Luke, I'm going to bring you in here for just a bit, because you've asked me many times what the importance of Jerusalem is about uh, why that's so important between the Jews and the Muslims. And I think that 
someone that's going to answer the, uh, answers those questions. Yeah, in a way. I mean, I, I understand that it's just it's like a holy ground, and, and um, you know, personally, I think it has something to do with the Ark of the Covenant. I think it uh, may still be somewhere in the area. Like I knew originally, it was in that room inside the rock of the temple, like in in the yeah. center. You know, the yeah. the little cave underneath, but. Uh, you know, that's been moved several times, and I, I think it's still around, still exists, and I think, you know, it's a highly advanced piece of technology that people are still fighting over, but there's other reasons involved, too, not just because of the art. Yeah, well, that's certainly, I, uh, Graham Hancock wrote a book on that um, idea that it was, you know, some kind of nuclear device or something like that. Um, Dr. Mike Heiser has a pretty good paper uh, about that. I think it's an interesting read. Um, but, but, you know, I think the way you look at it, regardless of what, what exactly it does or how exactly it functions, um, just from a purely geopolitical perspective, it would, it would start all this stuff in motion regardless, uh, regardless of anything. It would start to, to, to change the entire geopolitical landscape in terms of we would be sitting on a, a war very shortly. I got some questions that are kind of off topic, so go ahead. Okay. Well, I just wanted to say um, about, let me ask you about, uh, kind of like, it would seem natural to me in a way, and I never had considered this before, even hearing you talk about it, Chris, about Jerusalem being Mystery Babylon, but it seems pretty, it seems kind of natural to me in a historical context, too, because the early Christians would have been in some ways very inimical to Jerusalem. So it seems to me that they would that they would have really rightly have conceived that that's really where the mystery of Babylon was. That they were kind of, you know, saying that this is they're in, in a way kind of uh, putting Jerusalem down and saying, you know, we're separating from those, from those guys and they're the ones that are going to, you know, that's yeah, that's a good point, Adam. That's a really good point. And the, the early church fathers were uh, were I don't want to say anti-Semitic, but they were they were real close. And it seems like that uh, you know I think that 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 it has the same kind of argument that one could make uh, if if I try to press too hard the idea that look the early church was unanimous that the Antichrist would be uh, a Jewish person then one could make, well, yeah, but that's the same kind of thing as Joel Richardson, you know, his boogeyman of the day was, uh, 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 you know, is the Muslim, so he just simply says that the Antichrist are Muslims. But I would say it, it's a bit different when you get into the minutia of it, because, you know, for them it was a great deal harder to make such a claim, and you can see that their claims are based on Scripture. The reason I say that is that they had to also believe that how Jerusalem was going to be rebuilt, which at the time was an ash heap. In, in, when they wrote, so it was much more difficult for them to say stuff like that, uh, because and they would cite things like, you know, I don't know how it's going to happen, but apparently the temple's got to be rebuilt. Apparently this guy's going to sit inside it. So they're, they're quoting scripture and, and and saying it in that kind of logical sense. So I think that it's a it's a good point and one that needs to be uh, uh, taken seriously. But you're, you're right. Right. I think it was like was it Hippolytus? I think was the church father that you. Like in the second century, had written about it. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, and really, it's it's hard to say exactly uh, what they all thought about mystery Babylon. I mean, it's clear that they all thought that the Antichrist would be Jewish, which therefore would make would sort of by proxy make them uh, see mystery Babylon that way. But it's it's difficult because not very many of them comment on Revelation, and so we don't have too much information about about what they thought about Revelation seventeen eighteen. 
uh, well, Luke, what are your off-topic questions? Uh, I was, uh, <laughs> I have, uh, Ancient Aliens debugged on my laptop, but I still haven't been able to watch it because my laptop's down. But, uh, I wanted to know what's your thoughts on the pyramid? Like, what, what was its use, you know, back in its heyday, I mean, back in its prime? Right. Well, I think that the, the use of the temple, unfortunately, is pretty darn mundane. Uh, now, keep in mind, this is coming from a guy who I sincerely believed for most of my adult life that it was a number of other things besides a tomb. I really needed it to be that way, in a sense, because I just, I mean, that's how I that's how I cut my teeth on research, was researching the sort of niche uh, theories about the pyramid. So I was somewhat um, maybe disappointed uh, in the research for ancient aliens debunked to find that the most logical explanation, uh, I believe, is, is uh, set up by uh, both Bob Breyer and Jean-Pierre Houdin in terms of it basically being the actual tomb of Khufu. The reason that there are three chambers is because during this time of construction, basically because of the nature of Egyptian burial, they had to be ready at any given time unless if Khufu kicked the bucket. So when they started construction, they started they started the very easiest way uh, that they knew how, underneath the bedrock. Because, it, because most of the difficulty about the Great Pyramid that doesn't exist in the other two pyramids is that in the other two pyramids, which are obviously tombs, they simply put the, the actual tomb part in the bedrock, They're thereby eliminating the entire structure that was needed with the uh, the interior of the pyramid, which is you know the, all those those stones on top of the, the 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 king's chamber are easily identifiable as if you will braces to keep the massive weight of the that uh, pyramid from crumbling in on that king's chamber. They've done so many studies to see that the way that the, the, those grains are situated was actually sort of a, a a really cool kind of weight that when the the pyramid shifted it would actually offset the Anyway, to make a long story short, uh, so the the bottom chamber was something to to immediately Khufu in. Same thing with the queen's chamber. It wasn't supposed to be for a queen. It was in case the king died during that phase of the construction. Um, to be honest, I do, do not think that they've actually found... I, I think that inside the, 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 the Great Pyramid is still uh, all the treasure, all the stuff that was buried with Khufu. I do not believe that they've found Khufu yet, and nor all that was buried with him. And I would uh, encourage people to see why I say that by checking out Jean-Pierre Houdin's uh, theory and his subsequent work on it uh, about the so-called uh, uh, interior... Well, first, to understand his, his point about the Grand Gallery and the interior ramps uh, that have been val- you know, validated by French architects and everything else. So, uh, But yeah, I feel that that's, that's definitely what it was. What would you be your counter-arguments? Um... Well, one one thing that was kind of odd is uh, the the cisterns underneath, and um, you know what the, what they were for the the water channels going up underneath the pyramid and, and well, yeah. hitting the floor. Yeah. Well, there there was certainly a water channel, but the point is for that is that they actually dug a channel. So the the the, the pyramid was built in a quarry. It's called Khufu's quarry. And that's because, obviously, if they're going to need to build something in that kind of time, they can't be transporting the rocks. And so a good 80% of the rocks are, were quarried on site. But there were a number of pieces, uh, particularly the granite stone and some others, that needed to be brought in from other quarries outside of, of Egypt. So they dug a channel. This is a massive project. They dug a channel from the Nile to the, uh, to the actual site. So they could actually just ferry the granite blocks right to the place where they needed to load them onto the... Uh, 
this really cool counterweight system that, that was part of the uh, uh, the Queen's Chamber. Nevertheless, um, so 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 people have made a lot of uh, uh, stuff about the idea that there was that there was this idea of, of water being there, and I think that it simply comes from an, uh, not knowing that there was a channel dug from the Nile uh, to that to the quarry or from the from the Nile to the to the construction site. Um, what's your take on the on their light bulb, their version of the light bulb? Yeah, the light bulb is actually a variant depiction of the creation of the world. Um, the idea is in Egyptian mythology that Nut, uh, N-U-T, uh, was the primordial sea, okay? And this is how the universe began in their, in their view. What uh, first appeared out of the primordial nothingness of nothing, uh, out of Nut, what she brought forth was a, a lotus flower. The reason they believe that it was the first thing to come up is because lotus flowers traditionally sort of, you know, they go underwater at night and then come up in the morning. So it was depicted as a lotus flower. Now, what pops out of the lotus flower first in this creation is a bubble of air uh, and the god Atum, who is depicted as a snake. You know, those filaments in there have, have eyes and, and tongues and everything else. So it, it's, it's the first god Atum appearing in a bubble of air out of the lotus flower. The idea of the, when you can see the, the hands that are supporting it on both sides, that is a traditional uh, uh, depiction of the goddess Nut. Uh, another place is when the primordial sea raises in, in a different version of the story, because there were about three different versions of the story, depending on what city you were on, in. Uh, the other versions have her lifting up the solar barge of Ra. In that case, it's the beetle instead of the, uh, instead of the snake. So she's lifting up the beetle, who then is lifting up the solar barge of Ra for its initial journey across the sky. So basically, that is, it may look like a light bulb, but it is. It, but every Egyptologist w- would, would tell you exactly what that is. It's very interesting, because um, ancient alien theorists, as they're called on the show, um, they look at things from a very materialistic viewpoint. Uh, for for as fantastic as their theory is, everything is pretty materialistic. So they're looking at a piece of religious imagery that meant something to the Egyptians that they understood and we kind of barely understood, barely understand now. But they, but their context for that imagery was different. So, but a materialistic worldview would look at that and say, "That's a light bulb." But well, it's the same thing else with the with, with Pakal. Say it's, yeah. it, right. You know how Pakal is supposed to be riding a rocket ship. It's the exact right. same thing. That that, that is a, a Mayanist would would tell you exactly what those are, what that is. It's the world tree. You know, it's got the you know uh, the vision serpent in the middle of the branches and everything else. It's exactly what every Mayanist would say. But 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 that's a complicated thing that that nobody's going to really know. Uh, to be, I, I kind of look at it as just incredibly dishonest, especially because you know that people like Von Daniken and others were confronted with this at some point by somebody throughout their 30 years of, of, of and saying, hey, look, dude, this is clearly this, you know, and they said, you know, I'm still going to sell these books. Now, they didn't retract it because uh, it's, it's, it's an open and shut case. And so I look at these guys as, as, as dishonest at the end of the day because a lot of the things that they promote are, are yes and, and or no uh, situations, not subjective in my Chris, opinion. you're not going to get invited to the Paradigm Symposium anytime soon. <laughs> I so wanted to go there. Uh, <laughs> actually, I wanted to 
I wanted to get a We've boot. We've had the two organizers on our show, on our show before. Right? I, I think that that's the one that I tried to get a booth on. I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to slander them if it's not. But uh, but uh, yes, I tried to get on some of those uh, to booth just to hand out free copies of Ancient Aliens debunked, but uh, didn't work out. <laughs> was there anything else you wanted to ask? Luke? Um, what do you think of? Yeah, I was I was watching a a documentary about the city of Dubai, and I just got like a a dark feeling about it the, the entire time hmm. I was watching it. And, uh, I wanted yeah. to know your thoughts on Dubai and, and uh, in relation to uh, you know what we've been talking about. Well, explain a little more what your feeling was. Uh, well, it. you know, uh, it, it looked to me just like Sodom is described. Okay. It's just a, a city of sin, you know, and it's everybody's getting drunk and and uh, just partying it up is you know all the it's the rich people's uh, playground paradise you know and uh, another thing is they're extracting so many resources from the rest of the world to be able to build all these huge magnificent oh, things in the middle that, of the desert yeah though. in the middle of the desert the, the tallest building in the world you know there's an entire uh, snow park indoors just all all of these resources are being sucked into the city and it's just uh, it's I don't know it's just a dark place to me that's what I felt yeah. from it. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know too much about Dubai, but I would say that what I do seem to to get from it is that it, it is like the one kind of place in that area that they can that, that their their big sort of modern city that uh, one has always seen that kind of debauchery in, the, in that kind of cities like Rome or uh, you know early in, in America we had like New York and Chicago and these kinds of things where we would sort of a concentration, if you will, of debauchery, uh, and I think it's just human nature. Uh, to 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 do that kind of stuff, and I think for them, perhaps even more, you've got a, a situation where where that area it, it is you know just like anywhere else, people are are sinful. Give them a lot of money, they can be even more uh, ex- expressive with that uh, sinfulness, and I think that uh, that that's playing into as well. Do do I think it has? You know, significance in terms of the the big geopolitical picture, it very well might because any situation like that would, would have to be a mover and shaker, and you know what we call the uh, new world order or what kind of stuff like that. Uh, I'm sure a lot of, uh, uh, of agenda type stuff comes out of there, uh, in the same way it comes out of other sort of metropolises around areas like that where a lot of uh, wealth is concentrated, because that's where they be and uh, a lot of those types of folks so so in this in the sense in that sense yeah i totally agree with you but do but i don't necessarily see it as, a, as anything uh any prophecy that i know of either in uh, biblical or any other context it, i don't think it is but it, you know it could be okay. it definitely fits in probably with the kings of the earth that whole idea right sure mm-hmm. yeah. I, I wanted to ask you too um Chris, about uh, a little bit about Zeitgeist. This is kind of an old thing, and I think Luke has probably seen this. I, I've never really have sat down and watched it. Bits uh, and pieces. But it's kind of an odd film in that it, it kind of takes in like what 9 11 uh, conspiracy stuff and uh, banking conspiracy, but then likes to throw in the whole thing about, you know, uh, astral theology, basically. Uh, what's kind of your your take on Zeitgeist? I know you've done some things on the Zeitgeist debunked as well, right? Yeah, I do have uh, the website Zeitgeist debunked or uh, um, uh, wait no Zeitgeistchallenge dot com. 
uh, where I offer people uh, cash to be able to prove the claims of Zeitgeist, which, of course, is primarily the copycat savior idea. That is to say that uh, in the ancient past there were uh, mythological characters such as Horus or, or Attis or Mithras or all these um, different uh, um, gods that they will say, oh, didn't you know that they were uh, crucified, they rose again uh, after three days, and and all this other stuff that, that we, of course, know to be uh, part of the story of Jesus. So they say, well, that stuff happened before Jesus, and Jesus is just one of a long list of, of copycats of that original dying and rising God idea. And so this is a really powerful idea, because if you're anything like me, the first time I heard it, I was like, wow, oh my goodness, well, that is a closed case, you know? Because they said it so authoritatively, it was like, well, why should I even check that out? I mean, who would lie that big, you know? Uh, like Hitler said, people would rather believe a big lie than a, than a small one. And so I, it really prevented me from originally looking into it because they said it so confidently. And they made claims of fact so, so straight up that, like, well, that's it. When I, what it was interesting is when this first came out, I had for the for about a few months before this, I started getting into the uh, the conspiracy stuff around 2005, 2006, and I was uh, really into, uh, you know, starting to learn a little bit about it was for the first time, but Zeitgeist hadn't come out yet, and I just recently figured out, like, wait a minute, this isn't even true. You know, I, I was going off like early David Icke books that said stuff like this. There was an early book by a guy named Gerald Massey who was a a spirit basically said this. He wasn't an archaeologist or knew anything about this. He just wrote a book about it called The 16 Crucified Saviors. And um, anyway, so that's the kind of stuff I was working on. So I just recently found out it was wrong and that if you actually went into the history and tried to look up stuff about Horus or, or you know, the, the ideas like that, none of that was true. Horus never was crucified, you know, and rose after three days and the rest of the stuff you know, that they said he did. And so when Zeitgeist came out, I was in a position to say, look, guys, this is all creep. You know, we should really look into this. And it was just sweeping the conspiracy world at the time. So I, I was like, man, I can't get anybody to listen to me because every time I try to say something, they'd be like, ah, you're just a Christian. You don't know anything. You're trying to save. But we all know this is true and, and everything else. And I was like, no, no, this isn't even a bad. I'm just saying, like, from a conspiracy research point of view, this is nonsense. And nobody would listen to me. And so I created the Zeitgeist Challenge to essentially say, look, I will give you cash, $1,000 cash, uh, which is all the time, like, all, you know, anything I could even try to spell. Uh, and still, to this day, I don't know if I could, uh, you know, I could probably do it if I had to. But the point is, <laughs> you know, uh, the point is that nobody could do it. It's been, I don't know how many years, or, well, I guess it's been whatever, that, seven years or something like that since then, and uh, never had one single challenge. Uh, there's been people that have tried to post things about it, and they'll post on different, there's one particular person that posted on different forums, and I've been like, hey, why don't you just, why don't you just submit it, you know, to me so I can, so I can do it, and they won't do it. Uh, and the reason, well, it's a whole other situation. There, basically, there isn't anybody that's submitted one single challenge about it. Most people will write in and say, you don't know what you're talking about, I'm going to write you back in just, you know, five minutes and show you how all this is wrong. And the point is, is that they'll then do what I hoped that they would do, which is go try to find it for themselves. A good deal of the things uh, that Zeitgeist says are actually post-Christian. So, for example, Mithras is a pre pretty good example of that. So, these are gods that do share characteristics with uh, Jesus Christ, but the reason that they do, even according to Mithraic scholars, like scholars that spend their life studying about the, uh, the Roman mystery religion, 
Mithras, this is not to be confused with Mithra, the Persian god, but Mithra, the S on the end, was a part of the Roman mystery religion. That was, that uh, they'll say, look, this is the reason that it has some of those characteristics is because that part was post-Christianity, you know, provably. And yet, Zeitgeist simply says, look at this, Mithras has the same characteristic Jesus. So that's why the part of the Zeitgeist challenge is any pre-Christian, if you can find any pre-Christian references to any of this, is a very big caveat because you can find some post-Christian copycats the other way around. You know, Mithra's copy. In fact, I was just listening to something today about uh, Viking, uh, just a, a sort of a, a, a lecture about Vikings. And what was interesting is that uh, they actually did that as well. They had certain gods that, uh, after Christianity became big, they started, you know, giving their gods certain characteristics of, of Christianity. But I remember those exact same. Norse gods being told to me early on is, is uh, and, um, you know, proof that Christianity was copied from these earlier gods, which even this university-level thing, who's clearly anti-Christian in other parts of his lectures, has no reason to say the reverse of that. It's just not something that anybody believes. Even the, the agnostic scholar Bart Ehrman recently came out with a book debunking mythicism, which is what this idea is called. Uh, so, so, yeah, it's, it's just simply not a, a tenet theory. Yeah, it doesn't. The chronologically, it just doesn't add up. Yeah, and the, and they say a lot of weird things about you know that it's just it, it, when the, the cases that they do make. Uh, I also go through if he's interested the history of this theory. It developed in the Enlightenment period in the 1700s. It's the first time that anybody in the history of the world ever came up with the idea that Jesus didn't exist. Something that why well, make the case in that. Uh, video, Zeitgeist History Rewritten, that if it was really true, if we were dealing with the truth here, that Jesus really didn't exist, and he, you know, he was just by people, then you would expect to hear that from his enemies writing at the time, which there are plenty of, people like the Jews, the Jews who clearly did not think that Jesus was the Messiah, yet their argumentation is completely backwards if that was true. They're saying things like, oh, you know, his, his miracles... He didn't really raise from the dead, and all these other things that they try to say, which clearly the much better argument for those people at that time was, what are you guys talking about? This guy never existed. Nobody ever saw him. This is a completely made-up myth. Not one person thought to say that until the 1700s, you know, 1,600-plus years after the event, when <laughs> the least likely people to know anything about it, and their argumentation is based on... Uh, a complete, like this kind of stuff that we're talking about, it, at a time when, number one, they didn't even know about the, you know, Egyptian language. So, for example, the stuff about this came from people right after the Rosetta Stone was found. Nobody could really interpret it, you know, hieroglyphics. So people started coming out of the woodwork, like people like Gerald Massey, who said, um, you know, a, a self-proclaimed Egyptologist never went to school for it or, or whatever. Right after the Rosetta Stone, nobody knows what this stuff means. And he comes back writing these books, say, "Hey, I just cracked the code of Egyptian language, and it turns out it's a copy. Christianity is a copycat of Egyptian religion." Thank you very much. I'm out of here. You know, the, the, and it wasn't till that we actually figured out what the Rosetta, you know, the full implications and how to understand hieroglyphics that now every Egyptologist field knows for a fact that he, that Gerald Massey was a black and couldn't have known any less about this uh, this particular or about Egyptology or, or at least hieroglyphics. Didn't he get that from channeled information? Well, a lot of his stuff is from channeled information. He, him and, uh, 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 gosh, the other guy's name is eluding me at the moment, but um, they're both spiritists. That's what their main 
uh, the main thing that they wrote a book about was was this kind of stuff. They write incredible detailed stuff about how the spirit told me to do this, so I went down. They're getting ordered around their house all day long by spirits, basically. Um, it's an interesting read. So I talk about that and some other things in the uh, in the uh, presentation called Zeitgeist History Rewritten. That's similar to also the um, in Ancient Aliens debunked about the um, I can't remember what they're called now, but the 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 space the the aircraft that the Indians um, right, supposedly yeah. said they had Vimanas. Uh, the Vimanas, yeah. which which are in the ancient writings, but the most of the information on the Vimanas are from a channeled uh, supposedly channeled document that comes from the fifties. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and nobody ever mentions that when they're writing entire books about it and showing these 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 intricate blueprints of what look like you know fifty sci-fi you know bucket kind of space you know what the what they thought flying saucers looked like in the fifties right with propellers and stuff like that yeah that's ridiculous. That's the kind of stuff that your mom likes. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. to go go nuts. Ashtar. Ashtar command. <laughs> yeah. Well, Chris, I, yeah, I know you. it well. Yep. <laughs> yep. I know it. <laughs> I want to ask you the time that we have. Um, how have mainstream churches um, reacted to your book and to your ideas about Mystery Babylon? Well, I was looking at this to be a really difficult uh, road, but um, but actually it has been okay. Now, mainstream churches, okay. I don't. I don't think that they have any good reason to 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 not be for it. I think that um, what my experience has been is that if I get a chance to explain it, they'll nod their head in, in agreement because they know this stuff. They've they've read it's 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 a logical um, theory that they already know the scriptures to to support. They don't need me to really give too many scriptures because they sort of inherently know it. And that's the way I sort of keep it anyway. Uh, but so I've got a lot of acceptance from the places that I have gone. That being said, uh, I've also not been able to go a lot of places because of this theory. I think people uh, in a very pro-Israel kind of world that we live in, in terms of the uh, evangelical world, uh, they perceive this as a threat in some way to that idea, which is uh, not, you know, anything could be further from the truth if, if you listen to what I'm saying, but the point is I think it's perceived that way. Uh, so some of the really big names have uh, have definitely turned me down and that kind of stuff. But the way I kind of look at that is um, I would be sort of um, weary if I was getting too much acceptance from this kind of thing. I think that uh, I should expect a little bit of, uh, of difficulty if something is, it, you know, if you're trying to actually say something that, that's difficult yet true, uh, this is the kind of reaction that I would expect. A lot of genuine acceptance, but also a lot of um, uh, opposition with not very much scriptural opposition. Like, people aren't you know, I, I am very attentive to a scriptural reason that somebody says, hey, this is wrong because look over here and look over here, and what, is, what about this verse? And I have not yet, I can honestly say that I have not yet seen anything that somebody's said to me about that from, from trying to actually, you know, give me a reason why this is wrong that, that is not really answered. In fact, I answer in the book. I've not gotten a new one that troubles me uh, yet, so... So I'm confident in that, and I am open to that. If somebody does have something like that or a good reason, uh, I would be very, very interested in uh, in hearing it. Because look, if it's not true, I don't want to be going around telling telling people that it is. It's the bottom line. Um, so, so yeah. If you think it isn't, then let me know. Um, Chris, what's next for you? What are you doing? Um, what are your next projects? 
I know you've right, I'm, something I'm, going on. Well, I've got two two <laughs> things going on right now. Writing uh, two books. Um, well, three books. I'm writing one on paralysis, so that'll be out uh, hopefully pretty soon. We're still working on all the details, that we're, uh, but uh, that'll be out pretty soon. And then the other two books ha- will have to do with this basic subject. I'm going to give a scriptural, scriptural case for the Jewish Antichrist and a debunking of the Islamic Antichrist. Both of those books will be simuli- simultaneously sort of released as videos along the way, and hopefully, uh, if it arcs out, a, a documentary film project on that as well. In the meantime, I have sort of the regular stuff going on, keeping the Ancient Aliens debunked blog going, and, and all the stuff that goes with the Christianity 101 DVDs and, and the podcasts and stuff. If I had my way, every church would have a Chris White section in their, in their <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, it's interesting to run r- r- that kind of idea. I was just talking to somebody today who gave me a lot of hope. She she is a you know a really strong believer in a lot of this stuff, uh, and she's not afraid to to talk very gently about it to the people that might not uh, might not hear it. And she's had so much success with her church in, in hearing this. She's don't get me wrong. She's had a lot of uh, not you know things that they didn't like too, but. I was interested in her boldness because I tend to take the default position of, look, they're not going to be interested. They're not going to like it. I'll just keep my mouth shut. But uh, I, I was urged to, to say that perhaps I've taken the wrong position on that and that we should approach our churches more with this kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Chris, thank you so much. Um, we're running out of time, but uh, awesome as always. And Luke, is there anything that you want to add? Um it's good talking to you again. Always, always a pleasure. Interesting. interesting yeah, it's stuff. always interesting stuff. Um, Chris, yeah, thank you, Luke. Thank, thanks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I just want to say thank you guys for having me on. Thanks for for being uh, interested in not just this topic, all the stuff that you guys do, and trying to get to the bottom of truth. And you guys do a really good job uh, of interviewing. The questions are always great. So I just really appreciate you and appreciate the show. And uh, thanks for having me on. Thank you, Chris. It means a lot. Stay on the line with us, and uh, we'll be right back on Conspiranormal. All right, we are back on Conspiranormal. Oh, Luke just shot me. Ah! Oh, I'm dying. Adam's got toys to play with. Yeah, we got toys. We got toy guns. Those kinds of the cursed Etch-a-Sketch that just came down from the attic from my roommate. Was uh, cursed us with all kinds of stuff going on, poltergeist activity, and no, not really. Uh, what do you think? Um, Luke, that was pretty. Um, that's really, really interesting. Chris does his homework, man, and he goes. <laughs> yeah, thanks. So, <laughs> much, I mean, what he's saying there was just a really encapsulate encapsulation of so much that he has put on the internet. He goes into so much detail. It is exhaustive <laughs> detail. I've noticed. Yeah, uh, it is. It's it's something else to where. He really just does his homework and puts out everything on the table, and you're just... I've watched his videos and stuff, and my head is spinning just from the details, from the sheer detail. But that's good, because that's what you have to do. Oh, yeah. It sounds like he spends all of his free time uh, researching. This is what he does. Every minute of it. This is what he does. He just researches, and he puts out his videos, and... uh, he works some, but he puts just 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 doing straight research all the time that's, and that's putting good. out videos and stuff. And he's he's made a pretty big name for himself. And the guy, you know, lives pretty simply. You know, he doesn't uh, have any. He's not an arrogant guy by any means. Mm-hmm. He just he's just a pretty natural, cool guy. You know, I saw him last week, and 
But, uh, you know, kind of wanted to get your insights on what you thought about it. I know that you kind of come from the other side of the fence, so to speak, on some of this stuff. Yeah, I do. I'm, I uh, Like I was saying, I can't help but be a little bit more of an idealist. Um, you know, I always like to see, you know, facts. When I see the facts, I'm like, I'm not a, I'm not very egotistical and, and uh, firm in my beliefs on things. Whenever I do mm-hmm. see some kind of evidence, it's more compelling than what I currently believe, and I'm not going to be... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. resistant against that I'm going to be like okay and I'm going to accept it you know and change my beliefs on things but uh, like I was telling you I, there's so much that's not known about the ancient world you know I, I like to believe that they that they had electricity and they had technology in, in certain places including Egypt and, well uh, you know there was that battery yeah that, that the, uh, um, Baghdad battery yeah, yeah and, and, Baghdad my, and that's, battery. Some, that's something that my brother's been researching pretty heavily here lately and He's uh, he's still he's still doing research on it, but he's trying to tell me that there's there's three elements that are also mentioned in alchemy that they were using, uh, in in the battery itself, uh, zinc being one of them, and I can't remember the other two, but he's saying that uh, that's that they were making electricity, you know, by chemical uh, uh I forget the word for it, making an electricity chemical reaction. Chemical. Okay, chemical chem- reaction. yeah, by yeah. chemical reaction. Right. But, uh, Which is kind of a simple thing to do. Yeah. I think you use citrus fruit and all kinds of, like, a little bit of metal. Yeah. Um, um, you know, yeah. I want to know how to do it. But. On, a, on a larger scale, though, it gets more complex, you know, with more chemicals, but... Right. And you, and you are correct in that so much was lost. You were mentioning the Inquisition. Uh, I really want to put the Inquisition in that. I would say more if it's like... The Library of Alexandria was a massive storehouse of knowledge. Yeah, but that's part and of the Inquisition, probably, right? I mean, that's no, the Inquisition is is later. That's oh. that's in the uh, oh, okay. That's in the round like the Middle Ages. So who who actually burned the Library of Alexandria then? Yeah, there's there's some debate over that and when exactly it was lost. Um, you know, it was around, of course, from the time of Alexander the Great. Uh, and it was just this massive storehouse of knowledge. There were so many things that were lost to history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much history that was lost. So much knowledge. There's three times. One was Julius Caesar actually burned it at one time during a civil war in Egypt. Um, the second time was uh, supposedly around the time that, uh, that, that Christianity took a foothold in Egypt. And they were responsible for burning it. And then the third time, as I said, that 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 it was the um, the Arabs when they conquered uh, the Muslim Arabs when they conquered Egypt. Um, but pretty much after that, it was pretty much gone. Yeah. So I've heard I've heard different um, times that so probably each time there was some there was some storehouse lost. Right. And I believe that, like I was telling you, I believe that the church is still sitting on a lot of uh, repressed. Yeah, they may be with the Vatican because, probably would be because uh, any any anyone knows that. Um, and one of the most vital keys to like controlling a nation is to kind of write your own history. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm one of those guys that uh, you know I don't I don't really I'm not into the ancient aliens theory per se, but I am one of those people that um, believes in like kind of a that there was an advanced civilization. And you could call that Atlantis if you if you'd like. But uh, I think Atlantis is really just a template for any advanced civilization that is that has gone away. Right. Yeah, and definitely, you know, that's even biblical because you know there obviously was an antediluvian world. Mm-hmm. You know, there was the 
the world before the flood. And you look at technology like the ark that's mentioned, man, and, and yeah. there's, there, <laughs> with all of the things that that, that uh, box was capable of, you know, it's there's something going on there that's highly I'm beginning advanced. to think, to come back to that it was spiritual in nature, the ark was purely spiritual in nature. Yeah, I, I'm and thinking it, more scientific. Yeah, I used to really think that. I used to, you know, the Graham Hancock book that he mentioned, that's called The Sign and the Seal. That's a book where he says, you know, basically he traces the history of the Ark, and he believes that it's in Ethiopia. There's a lot of people that believe it's in this little chapel in Ethiopia. And supposedly, these priests have to wear, that the, the one guy that gets to see it, he has to wear thick clothing, and usually these guys have cataracts, which, you know, is something of radiation poisoning. Mm-hmm. Um and they, these guys die after an extended period of time. The reason that I think that possibly the Ark of the Covenant may be a spiritual, may I go back to what it says in the Bible, that it's a spiritual object, that it has spiritual power, is because of the Dybbuk box. And the Dybbuk box, you know, long story short, I'd love to do a show on this, I'd get somebody on to talk about it, uh, this guy bought a little Jewish wine chest from the 1930s. Okay, and he opened it up. It had these little knickknacks and all these kind of things in it. Okay, well, he brings it back to um, his antique shop. It causes his mother to have a stroke. It causes strange paranormal things to happen down in the basement. He eventually ends up getting rid of it and sells it on eBay, of all things, uh, takes it to these college kids, buy it, and they put it in their house. Well, they start having things like their, like, like, like their hair falling out, extreme weakness. Now, there's nothing radioactive in this box. It's just little knickknacks and little things that are in the box. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in it. So there's nothing, there's no plutonium or uranium or something like that. It's just a box with stuff in it. But they start having this this reaction that's kind of similar to radiation sickness. Bad dreams, stuff like that. Eventually, this guy buys it from, gets it from them. I believe he's associated with the same college. He has the same kind of um, things happen to him. Well, he still has it. He's got it put away somewhere now. But... The spiritual power that was coming out of this little box made in the, the what it caused the people to to have, like the uh, very similar to radiation mm-hmm. poisoning, made me think of the Ark of the Covenant. And if maybe somebody in the 30s in Poland, which is supposedly where this comes from, where there's a huge Jewish community, maybe somebody tried to make a miniature Ark of the Covenant imbued with some kind of spiritual power and succeeded in doing it. Just, or just a cursed object. Yeah, uh-huh. cursed object. Well, what if the what if the Ark was kind of in the same, had the same kind of power to it? Yeah. Which is what it says in the Bible. So, I'm kind of playing with the idea that the Ark is a still a spiritual object, not necessarily a piece of technology. Even though the technology thing is interesting too. Because it very easily could be that. So it's interesting. And the Ark of the Covenant goes into our um, discussion that we had with Chris about 
you know, apparently it's an extremely valuable object. Whoever possesses it holds immense power. Mm -hmm. You know, like Raiders, like the movie, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, which, you know, really isn't far from the truth from all this kind of stuff that the Nazis were trying to get, like the Holy Grail, and they yeah. actually were trying to get these kind of objects. Yeah. I know that if I were ever to uh, come into power, which is never going to happen. <laughs> but, Lord forbid. But, uh, <laughs> but Everybody has to listen to metal! <laughs> yeah, I, I would. Metal and grindcore! There is one style of music. Wow. <laughs> no, but... Uh, I kept looking at you and Chris mentioned the beast. <laughs> the beast. kept doing the devil horns. Yeah, because <laughs> awesome. But if, if I were to come to some kind of political power, the first thing I would go after is repress knowledge, dude. First thing. You'd get, like, the Ark of the Covenant and the Sword of Longinus and the yeah. Holy Grail. I, I would. find it all. Just like, exactly. I'd get all the world's best scientists together, and yeah. I, I would try to figure out some some repressed shit, dude. That's, that's my number one. You'd have all the, all the ladies with you all the yeah, time. Yeah, my harem. Your harem? Yeah. <laughs> Your harlots? Yes. <laughs> A very good question uh, about Dubai. That was Thanks. excellent to ask that. Yeah, I, I know that. Um, like what he, made you feel that way when you like? What, were, what you were watching something? Well, like he was saying, um, you know, there's a lot of centers for debauchery. It's not just Dubai. You know, well, Las Dubai. Vegas, you know, which yeah. you describe, you know. But you know, and, and if you talk to uh, Brian about Vegas, you know, it's just a normal. It's a normal city. He lived there, and it's. He's like, okay, Look there's a strip and there's a yeah. big casino and a lot of tourism going on, but it's just a normal city. And, uh, I mean, maybe Dubai's like that, too. And just what I've seen on, about it on TV just makes me feel like it's a city of, of evil, like a city of debauchery, evil, you know, sin, you know? Well, I mean, you know, does it have the world's tallest building now? Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, that goes back, you think about, like, the Tower of Babel, you know? I mean, it's definitely a modern-day Babylon. Yeah. In a way, there's a lot of, uh, I think, why people have um, kind of stuck with that kind of symbol of Babylon is that Babylon really is kind of a symbol of any kind of really large, debaucherous city. Mm-hmm. You know, the mystery Babylon is something else. But, you know, that, that idea of, of Babylon, you know, like the Rastafarians believe that. They believe the whole world is Babylon. That you live Babylon. Babylon. Babylon, man. <laughs> so, I need, to, I need to find. That's a good. I need to find a Babylon song and put it at the end of the Rastafarian Babylon song. For this. Clap, Babylon. But anyway, uh, I'm about ready to call it a day. Yeah, and man. Luke and I are going to watch a movie here. Right. And uh, we. Uh, everybody, check out the. If everybody's got Netflix, check out the documentary Dirty Wars. So that we don't. You know, I wish we could get a little more into on the shows, you know, all the weirdness we talk about, but I wish we could kind of get into kind of the the evil stuff that's kind of going on underneath our feet. And, uh, but, uh, we'll call it a night, and, uh, we hopefully, uh, be back in December to maybe for a couple more shows this year, and then, uh, try to get a couple more guests. I'd love to try to get, uh, somebody to talk more a little bit more about like haunting stuff I think we need to get a new, do another show about that so if you have anything to add Luke we'll just call it let's do her alright shoot the gun for me Luke y'all come back now and can spare the world.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.